Good morning, Riverstone Church. Good to be back with you all. It was a very refreshing three weeks away for our family. Thank you. I really mean that. On behalf of our family, thank you all for supporting us in this way to have some extended time together in rest. It was very profitable for us. So thank you on behalf of our family. We love you and we are truly grateful for you all. And it's good to be back with you all. We missed you. I really mean that. We enjoyed our time, but we also missed you. So it's good, it's good to be back. Now, while I was, while we were away in Puerto Rico for two weeks, really cool place, by the way, um, I had some, some time to immerse myself in the life and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wow. What a legacy. For those who are unfamiliar with Bonhoeffer, he was a faithful servant of God who was used in powerful ways to encourage, powerful ways in the early 20th century to encourage the confessing church of Germany to persevere well under Hitler's evil Nazi regime. Now, Surprisingly, one of the things that stood out to me about Bonhoeffer was that he came from great material wealth and prestige. He came from renowned stock, both his parents and both sets of grandparents. Judges, lawyers, chemists, neuroscientists. His father was the leading professor of psychiatry in Berlin. Dietrich had all the wealth access and resources to do whatever he wanted in life. And he chose faithfulness to the call of Christ, which eventually led to his execution just three weeks before the end of Hitler. Now, the reason why this stood out to me in a, in a personal way as I was reflecting on his life is because As I was reading about his life and reflecting on my own life and call to Christ at the age of 27, I had nothing, nothing left, nowhere to go, only two roads lie before me, death or imprisonment. You see, I was at 27 a homeless heroin addict facing years in the feds for my crime in support of my addiction. It was very serious. Now, when some hear my story, as I'm interacting with people everywhere out in the world, when, when, when I'm able to share parts of my story with others, sometimes you'll hear it received in this way. Oh, okay. Makes sense. You had nothing. So you were in search for something, you found religion, makes sense. I'm glad it's working out for you. Kind of, and no. Not at all, right? Because being a Christian has nothing to do with whether you're a have or have not, rich or poor, white, black, brown, male or female. 
And it has everything to do with becoming to, with coming to behold the preciousness of Jesus. That's it. Bonhoeffer considered everything he had as nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and gave up his very life for that great value. In a similar way, my former life completely faded away when I first was radically transformed by the loving kindness of Jesus. And you know what's even more marvelous than that? Every one of us in this room shares that testimony. Every one of us. Very simply, Jesus has become precious to us. We all share that testimony. And our family in Lebanon, Syria, Holland, Africa, South America, all over the world. Jesus has become precious to us. But that's not true for everyone. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is that our destiny as a humanity, every single human on the face of this earth, our destiny depends entirely on our relation to Christ Jesus. Is He precious to you? How precious? That's a big question. How you answer that question will fully and directly affect your satisfaction in this life, your peace and security in this life, your joy in this life. Is Jesus precious to you. I'm grateful for my brothers and our elders who led us through the last several weeks of First Peter. Our family has, has kept in, in, in worship with you all at a distance. I've certainly been encouraged. Now, let's pick up in First Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to invite the ushers to pass around the Bibles for those who want to read um, with the Bible in their hand, and I'm going to open up by seeking the Lord to open our eyes as we approach His Word. Lord Jesus, as we seek You in Your Word, open the eyes of our heart, we pray. Help us to see and behold marvelous things from Your Word. Help us to see and behold You, Lord Jesus that we might be filled with your goodness and loving kindness and would be radically transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Peter continues, And coming to him, the Lord Jesus, that is, from verse 3 where we ended last week, well, we saw last week, we come to him by drinking the grace and loving kindness of God through his word. Remember, the milk of the word unto salvation last week. As we come to him, Peter says, a living stone. Hmm. Why does he go from this imagery of newborn babies drinking the milk of the word to stone imagery? A lot of debate on that. But I think that if we zoom out again and see the passage in its larger context of the letter, it will help us understand the passage that much more clearly this morning. Remember, Peter is writing to his fellow elect exiles throughout Asia Minor to exhort them to stand firm in the faith so that they would persevere well through their persecution and suffering and in so doing, they would witness to the grace of God in Jesus. That's the purpose of the letter. We've seen Peter over and over again exhorting his brothers and sisters going back and forth several times between indicative, imperative. Remember, who we are, what we do. Who we are, what we do. Our identity, our role. Our identity, our purpose. That's important. We need to know that still today. Thank you, Peter. He says, as you keep coming to him, as to a living stone, the one who was rejected by men, but in the eyes of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are just like the living stone, bound together as a house of stones, his glorious temple in which he dwells. You are his house, Peter says. Each one of you, precious stones of all shapes, sizes, colors, and backgrounds. Like looking into a kaleidoscope or at stained glass windows at a church. Marvelous in the eyes of God. Side note, it is totally cool if you start telling people that we have stained glass windows at our church. Honestly, I don't know when these prints are coming down. You seem to love them, so I think we just need to accept it. You can start telling people that. Look, see, like, we've probably heard more feedback about these prints. Anyway, thank you, Tracy. Um, marvelous. If they can serve a purpose, it's to, give a, it's to show us God marvels at his beautiful masterpiece, the church like looking at stained glass windows in a beautiful old building. We are his house. We are also, Peter says, his priests. All of us in his service. We have identity and purpose in him. That purpose, Peter says, to continually offer up Spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. We'll clarify that in a bit. 
What we have here in the opening verses, verses 4 and 5, serve as the main idea in this section. This is what he wants them to know about Jesus, the living stone, the church, his living stones, and the world around us. Let's read on. Verses 6 through 8. For this is contained in Scripture. What we're going to read now, for serves as the basis, the grounding of what we just read. Verses 4 and 5. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. In verses 6 through 8, what we see here is Peter quoting from three passages in the Old Testament directly, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 28. Peter is speaking to a reality that he learned firsthand from Jesus. In all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus references these same Old Testament passages while rebuking Jewish leaders who are challenging him in all three Gospels. Take Matthew 21, for example. Jesus is in Jerusalem right after his triumphal entry at the beginning of Passion Week. He's teaching in the temple. And the chief priests come forward and say to him, Who do you think you are? telling us what to think and what to do. By what authority do you have? And he responds by telling him two parables. One, the parable of the landowner who goes away and trusts his vineyard to tenants. And remember, at harvest time, he sends his servants to go collect the produce from his vineyard, and the tenants kill the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. So the landowner says, I'll send another cohort. So he sends another group of servants, and the tenants kill the second group of sent ones. Then the landowner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my very own son. Surely they will listen to him. And the tenant said, look, it's the heir. Let's kill him and take all his inheritance. And they killed him too. Jesus tells this parable and then says to the Jewish leaders, what do you think the landowner is going to do to the tenants when he comes back? The Jewish leaders respond, Surely he will bring those wretches to their wretched end. And he will turn, their, turn his vineyard over to other tenants. Jesus responds, Have you never read in the scriptures 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, he says. Then he says, I tell you the truth. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. And those who fall on this stone will be crushed into pieces. He's saying to them, you reject me now, but you will not have the last word. Your rejection will be turned into the very foundation stone of my kingdom. He's foreshadowing his death and resurrection. Now, keep in mind, Peter is right there in the temple with him, hearing this firsthand the whole time. Could you imagine what's going on in Peter's mind? I'm with him. <laughs> Probably something like that. And within a week of Jesus saying these words, those same Jewish leaders stood on Calvary and threw him away like a pebble in their shoe. Get out of here, you pesky pebble. Good riddance. They mocked as Jesus, <coughs> gasping for his last breath on the cross. What's the matter? You can save others, but you can't save yourself. Pathetic. Oh, hell, the king. <laughs> what a fool. But that's not where the story ends, is it? Darkness sweeps over the sky. The earth starts quaking. Rocks shatter in half. The precious temple veil tears in two. And the very Roman centurions who just crucified him declare, Surely that was the Son of God. Yes, it was. They threw out the wrong stone. Because God says, that stone there that you tossed away on that hill, that's my stone. And he is precious to me. And no one throws away my stones without reaping due penalty. And of course, Three days later, God vindicated the preciousness of Jesus fully and finally in his resurrection. Flip! Duh! The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and he who believes in him will never be ashamed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he took our sin and shame on the cross that we could receive his forgiveness and everlasting honor. 
we who believe in him bear his name now. The cross is foolishness to the world and marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous. The cross dumbfounds the wise of the world. This cosmic paradox that the weakling becomes king, it's offensive. It's a stumbling block. Nonsense. Power and prestige, achievement, domination reign, not sacrifice. What we see in the Gospels is that Jesus applied these very Old Testament scriptures to his own rejection by the Jewish leaders. They're the builders who reject him, the precious stone, to their demise. Now, in 1 Peter 2 here, what we see is Peter applying the same Old Testament scriptures to the, resurrect, to the rejection of Jesus, absolutely, because he heard that firsthand, but he extends its application to include disciples of Jesus, his elect exiles. And what he's doing here is the rejectors of the precious stone are extended to all unbelieving neighbors, the pagan world around them. You see that? What he's saying here in verses 4 through 8 is this. As we come to him, we will be like him. Alive. Living stones with a living hope in his living word. Precious, elect stones in the eyes of God. And likewise... We will be rejected by men. It's certain. But they will not have the last word. Because he who believes in this stone will never be ashamed. He is the chief cornerstone the one who holds our firm foundation in place. We are immovable in him, no matter what happens to us or around us. Peter says, this precious value then, this precious value or honor, same word, is for you who believe. You believe in this precious Christ, this precious cornerstone, your salvation is safe and secure. You are His precious stone now. But he who rejects the Christ, who chooses not to believe, will fall to their demise. Shame and disgrace will be their destiny. You see what he's doing? He's preparing the church in a hostile world. He's preparing the church in a hostile world. How does he do so? He helps them see that there are, that there are ultimately only two groups of people on the face of this earth. Believers of Christ 
and unbelievers of Christ. Those with everlasting honor and those with everlasting shame. Those who accept precious Jesus, those who reject precious Jesus. Everyone's destiny depends on their relation to Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone. And know something, Peter says, before I move on, the reject becomes the renown. You see? When others reject you and reject the Christ, know that in their rejection and mockery, they take nothing away from the preciousness of Jesus. Nothing. In fact, the opposition and suffering, the implication is this, the opposition and suffering that you face only affirms your union with Him. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's not hyperbole, family. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Uh oh. Or appointed to, in our translation. Same thing. What we see here is the compatibility of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Yes, it is due to their disobedience of the word that they reject Christ and stumble. But it is no surprise to God because His purposes reign over all things. He is always in control and has a purpose for everyone in His sovereign plans. Everyone. Every act of everyone fit perfectly in His sovereign plans. Consider one other place where Peter says similar things in Acts 4. Right after he and John were arrested for preaching Christ and healing a lame man, all the Jewish leaders come out to them in Jerusalem and say, by whose authority or in what name have you done this? Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, literally the guys, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's the gospel again. Salvation alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Now notice, you killed him. 
Peter says, which is very true, literally. Scripture says the chief priests marveled at them, being uneducated, untrained men. They said, surely these guys have been with Jesus. So they said, okay, okay, look, we'll release you. Just, just stop preaching Christ. Oh, no, sorry, can't do that. Can't do that. Peter says, we cannot stop speaking about that which we've come to hear and see. Jesus has become precious to them. Now, here's the point. Then, Acts 4 says, they went home rejoicing and praying to God, saying this, The kings took their stand against the Lord and his Christ, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus those whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's what Peter prays to God. You see? The Jews killed him, and yet it was God's predestined plan. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Compatible. Now, the logic goes like this for our sake today. If God purposefully used the greatest act of evil in the history of mankind, more evil than anything Hitler did, and that was evil, this is far worse than any act of evil on the face of this earth, the history of humanity, if God purposely used the greatest act of evil in the history of mankind, the murder of his son, for his good purposes, namely, to bring salvation to us all for his glory, then would he not also have sovereign purposes for all of our rejections? Hmm? You bet. You bet he does. When we experience mockery, God has a purpose there. When we experience rejection, God has a purpose there. When we experience persecutions and sufferings, God has purposes there. As we persevere well through the persecution and suffering, God has purposes there which Peter will make clear in the verses ahead. What we've seen thus far in verses 4 through 8 is Peter preparing the church in a hostile world by showing them the preciousness of Jesus, chief cornerstone, our security status and honor as his priests and living stones, forming his house, dwelling in a world that, is, that rejects both him and us. That's who we are and where we are. Elect exiles in a hostile world. Now in verses 9 through 12, we'll see Peter propelling the church in holy living. Let's see how he does that. 1 Peter 2, read 9 through 10. But you, unlike the disobedient, destined for doom, you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's very own possession, so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter hones in on what is most important for his fellow exiles in a hostile world, their identity. But you can be assured in who you are. A chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What's important to note here is that these were the very identity markers for Israel in the Old Testament. Straight from Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43, where God says, I chose you. You are precious to me. You will declare my praises among the nations. Here, Peter associates these identity markers with the church, including Gentiles, non-Jews. The church, what we see here, is the continuation and maturation of believing remnant Israel, his people of promise. All the titles, honors, and privileges of old covenant Israel are extended to the church in the new covenant. We were once not God's people, now we are God's people. That's a direct quote from Hosea 2, now applied to the church. The new covenant church consists of the new tenants that now possess the landowner's vineyard so that we would produce much fruit. That's us. Peter says, this is who we are. His precious possession, his new creation. He called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His light is marvelous, amen? You know, when I was first transformed in a detox ward of a hospital in May of 2009, just before I went off to a Christ-centered rehab, that's a story for another time, the first hour in my detox room, I was radically transformed. I was lit with life and light lit up, so lit that I was actually hated in the whole ward for the whole week. You see, detox is not a happy place. Everyone's coming off drugs, feels terrible. And here I am in the middle of a group session like this, This is a true story. A guy is sitting right across from me in the group session like this. He wants to devour me, deadlocked on me, so much so he can't take it anymore. He stops the speaker and says, hold up, hold up. Why are you so happy? I literally said, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I'm free. I'm free. I literally said those words. I had no idea yet what happened to me just two hours prior. But I was lit up 
marvelous. This is what he does. This is who we are. And it's marvelous. Can you see? God's light awakens us to a beauty like no other and births within us a new taste for that which is marvelous to him. I have to share with you one more story, a fresh one this week. I just got back from three weeks away. Day one of my first day back, I had to call Kate Wellsford, a dear sister, long-standing member who's grieving over the loss of her father. She's sharing with me how God is leading her in her healing process and at one point said, I'm so grateful for my last conversation with my father. I think it was the last, maybe one of the last. She said, my father looked at me in the hospital and said, Kate, thank you for all that you've done for me. She said, Dad, no, I haven't done anything. It's the, it's the nurses. The nurses have done everything. No, no, no. You've done far more. You brought me out of darkness and into light. She says, Dad, no, that's not me. You know who that is, right? He says, yes. Yes, I do. Beautiful parting words. Family, press on. The world is suffering in darkness and needs the light of Christ. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. They need us. Our identity has function in the world to proclaim the excellencies of Him who lights us up with new life. We live in a way that radiates His excellencies and beauty above all things. We show and share the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These are our spiritual sacrifices we continually offer up as His royal priests, showing and sharing the preciousness of Jesus. Peter says, be the preciousness of Christ because you are precious to Him. Now in verses 11 and 12, he's going to show us what this looks like practically. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, another word for elect exiles, resident aliens, migrants, those living outside of their homeland, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. He says, resist your former fleshly passions. If Christ has truly become precious to you, you should be overwhelmingly satisfied. You don't need to chase after the petty, fleeting pleasures like you used to. Come to Him. Drink. He will fill you. He will satisfy you. He will do that. He wants to. He stands at the door and knocks. If you let him in, he'll come in and dine with you. He wants to commune with you. He's that precious. And Peter says, and fight. Not the world. We don't need to fight them. We're secure. Right? We fight ourselves. 
Peter says. Not the first time we've seen this over the last year. Contrary to what we hear and see too often in the world around us, Christians are not at war with the world. We're at war with ourselves and spiritual forces of evil. Peter says, feel the preciousness of Christ. You see? Feeling. Let your lusts or desires, same word, be satisfied in Christ. And therefore, resist your fleshly desires that want to take you out. That's what he's saying. Lastly, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, behavior now. You see what he just did? He's propelling the church forward in holy living in a hostile world by showing them how to be, feel, and do. The preciousness of Christ. Being, feeling, and doing. In other words, become who you are. Holy. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent or beautiful, this word connotes. How? Coming to the beautiful one, as we've seen. Being filled with his excellencies and letting his excellencies flow through you. Why? Peter makes clear. So that when your unbelieving neighbors or schoolmates or co-workers slandering you, slander you, calling you an evildoer for being a Christian, not if, but when, they will be put to open shame. Because your loving conduct and service to them is undeniably beautiful. Peter says, welcome scrutiny. Come, see for yourself. Look, take a closer look. Look online. Come to school. Come to my workplace. Come to my home. Take a look. Can I get you a drink? Oh, how different this is than much of Christianity today where we hear, withdraw, retreat, isolate, keep them away, us versus them. Peter says, no, us among and for them. Welcome, scrutiny. Then, when Christ visits them either at judgment or the day of their salvation like Cornelius in Acts 10 even they might be saved Peter says they've seen what is truly precious through you having seen and heard through you what is truly precious some will come to believe hallelujah God has purposes there Yes, it's true. When the world hates you, remember, they hated him first. But no, don't hate them back. Love them like Jesus and Peter. God has purposes for you there. 
Peter in Acts 2 said, salvation is for you too, you who crucified him. Peter says, come to Jesus, to the very murderers of Jesus. When Bonhoeffer was unjustly arrested and sent to Tegel Prison in Berlin, he was there for six months before he even received a warrant for his arrest. They didn't have anything on him yet, and he was serving time. Those who served with him, there's much documentation of their diaries. Those who served with him, time behind bars, documented how he was the most amazing man they've ever met. His joy was constantly radiating, they note. So loving and considerate of everyone in the prison that even the Nazi prison guards were coming to him for care, counsel, and mentorship. Those who drove in the same van as him on the way to execution at the end noted his demeanor never changed in the slightest. He was a precious man, an anchor for us all, they said. His final words, as they called his name up to execution, were this. He looked at his friend and said, this is the end of, for me. This is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. Unshakable security. He found the most precious treasure on the face of the earth, Jesus. And for the fullness of joy, gave up all he had that he would behold this precious value. Family, I don't know what the future holds for us Christians in America. I don't know. I don't know who the next president will be. I don't know what will become of our economy our society, our schools, our communities. I'm not fully sure, nor am I confident in any of the above. But two things I am certain of. One, God has purposes for us in it. And two, Christ Jesus is our rock and refuge our Lord God and precious Savior. If we want to persevere well, living holy in a hostile world, we must pursue and practice the preciousness of Jesus. It's the only way. Christians pursue and practice the preciousness of Christ. Is he precious to you? Come to him. He turns away no one who comes to him. If he is precious to you, practice that which is precious to him. 
and you will produce fruit. He's coming back. This is who we are. This is how we feel. This is what we do. Christians pursue and practice the preciousness of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are so, so good to us. You give us to feast on the abundance of your house and give us to drink of the river of your delights. We shall not want. In you lead us in the path of life and light. You know what is good for us. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right side, pleasures forevermore, Lord. Satisfy us today and in this week ahead with your loving kindnesses. Fill us with your beauty, your glory, your excellencies, that they would radiate through us, Lord. That we would be humble, gentle, loving servants of yours. Salt and light in the world that as we love and serve others, it would abound in thanksgiving and praise to your great name, Lord. Awaken faith among us for those who do not know you. We lift you up. Draw us unto yourself, Lord. We pray that you would be worshipped and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord be gracious to you and bless you. May he make his face to shine upon you that through you, his ways would be made known throughout our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.